One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. You know, there are many ways to have insight. There are many ways to have growth and, you know, reflect on my life and my experiences and my behaviors. The essay is one of them. It is unique. And, you know, therapy gets to some things the essay doesn't. The essay gets to some things that therapy doesn't. There's lots of tears in both. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. A witch brings change to the seen world using unseen forces. A witch gestures through the veil between worlds. 
writes this week's guest. Alyssa Washuda is a nonfiction writer and a member of the Cowlitz Indian tribe. She's the author of two books, My Body is a Book of Rules, and her most recent collection, from which that quote just came, called White Magic. White Magic is the story of a period in her life right after she got sober, when she was reckoning in a different way, not only with the mental illness and sexual trauma that had shaped her, but with the different cultural traditions that had shaped her. Her coal mining family, Catholicism, her Coast Salish ancestry, New Age spirituality, astrology Twitter, tarot culture, so on. I need to get better and I'm out of ideas, she writes in one of these essays. And through the essays, she does a deep dive into magic and into the various frameworks she has for understanding wild transformation, which is what she thinks she needs. The book is also full of research and historical tidbits and recollections, direct address, experiments. It's got Phil Collins and the video game Oregon Trail and Twin Peaks and lots more. We got to talk about a bunch of that here, as well as about Washuda's process of passing through what she calls a portal when she finally understood what the book was going to be. Here's Alyssa Washuda. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. In 2015, I got sober, and it really just changed a lot of things for me. Um, but not instantly. It was a process. Um, it was, you know, a, a longer threshold than, you know, one would go across when going through a door. It was, you know, it took years to really, um, I think, become fully acquainted with my sober self and to figure out what that was going to mean in relationships so I just kept thinking about thresholds. I kept thinking about portals and, um, and, and crossing through the idea of, of going through that, whether it's in Twin Peaks, um, they talk about crossing the threshold into the Black Lodge or, um, you know, the idea of the time between eclipses as an astrological threshold of sorts. Yeah. And in the book, you write about the fact that the this kind of interest in portals in um how one comes to maybe pass through to heaven or to hell or neither in, like in your catholic school upbringing that these were actually questions that were with you or maybe an interest or an attraction that was with you from when you were really really young yeah yeah i was raised catholic and you know i was it was part of my schooling. And as a little nerd, I was really into everything I was learning in school. And learning about heaven and hell was different from learning about, you know, the history of the Revolutionary War or, um, you know, mitosis or something like that. It was different. And it really had a lot of weight to it. Um, of course, the questions of, you know, eternity and heaven and hell are like pretty weighty ones. Um, and so I keep, you know, it's something that I keep, 
or at least I kept dealing with in my work, I kept returning to these ideas of, um, I think, you know, um, Catholic morality and what that means for, you know, living, just living a good life or living life at all. Yeah. And that, but it, it also seems like that Catholic framework was twinned very early with an interest in if I don't know, for lack of a better word, witchcraft or a, like a different, a different yeah. sort of more, a, a different way of thinking through the the big mysteries of the world, which yeah, surprised it, me. Like, how did that, I was curious to hear you talk more about the kind of early relationship between those two, some might say like antagonistic ways of thinking about big portals and big mysteries. I think that, you know, at the same time that I was learning about Catholicism and the catechism and, um, you know, just Catholic saints and, and all of the things that I became curious about in that area, at the same time, my extracurricular reading was, you know, whatever looked good at the library. I read so much as a kid and, I really liked these books, um, the Dory series by Patricia Coombs, um, which is, I, I talk about it a little bit in White Magic. She's, Dory is a little witch. Um, her mother is a big witch. She's very busy and important. And Dory gets into trouble when her mom is out working uh, as a witch. And, you know, I think that there were lots of cultural representations of witchcraft that um, changed as I grew up. And of course, the craft was really big for me when I was a preteen. It was terrifying. And uh, it felt believable that I could wield that kind of power. I have always taken books very seriously. You know, I. I think even as a kid, even when I knew something was fiction, it it felt real. And so I felt like there could be something to hold on to in there that I could use for my own benefit to um, sort of, you know, shape my own self in the world. I think I've always been really interested in some idea of mystery of things that are not immediately apparent and you know whether that's how witchcraft works or what heaven and hell are like what purgatory is you know how what will what will my tally end up being uh you know after i die how will i you know, I, I can't know right now whether I've been good enough. That was always a big question for me as a Catholic kid. And um, I think that, that witchcraft was just another facet of that in a way, some kind of mystery that I could approach, but not fully exhaust. Um, my interests in, in, you know, 
I have lots of interests that are sort of some enduring, most of them fleeting, and I become really obsessive and tend to exhaust those interests in a way uh, or get bored with them. And I think that that kind of mystery is really appealing to me for that reason, because there's just more there that I am not capable of ever fully approaching. I I just, I think I like that kind of... Um, I think I like that kind of object of curiosity. Right. Like the the core mystery at the center of existence is not something you can necessarily fully wrap your arms around and then get bored of. Like it's a, it's an, uns, an insoluble problem. Um, yeah. Maybe and, not in like a, like maybe problem is the wrong word. It's like an insoluble puzzle. Yeah. Well, just thinking about, you know, like math problems or science quizzes or something, you know, I was really studious as a kid and, um, And, you know, I, I do, I have memories of feeling that I needed to be so excellent in all subject areas. You know, I needed to really properly memorize the phases of cell division that sticks in my head because I could not do it. You know, I just, there would be areas in academics where I would meet my match and, it was really frustrating for me and it was really, really hard and it stuck with me. Um, but you know, the, the mystery of like divinity of the universe, there's less pressure because nobody can ever figure it out. You can just sort of, um, learn some of the contours of how people understand it. But you know, the, the, for some reason, that feels more inviting than intimidating for me. Right. We've been talking to guests recently about different kinds of inheritance um, mm-hmm. or inheritance has been kind of coming up as a theme a lot. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting about white magic is the way that you are describing having sort of multiple inherited ways of approaching the mystery of the universe. Um, Mm -hmm. Catholic, American, uh, indigenous Native American, that that there are like all of these um, sort of, I don't know if you would even call them competing, but these coexisting inherited ways of understanding, stories of understanding um, that, that live maybe together in your life, but definitely that you put in conversation in this book. And I was excited to hear you talk about the ways that you wanted all these different kinds of stories to live, these sort of lineages, narrative lineages to live together on the page in this project. I think that there's often a desire for the idea of inheritance to be really clean linear, um, easy to track, whether we're talking about, you know, blood quantum, family trees, whether we're talking about epigenetics and um, 
you know, historical trauma, I think that there is often this impulse to make everything neater and more explainable than it could possibly be. I find that to be an interesting um, conundrum when it comes to defining my own identity. What I think came out of the writing of my first book, My Body is a Book of Rules, was that trying to get my identity defined on the page was an impossible task. And that's something that's at the heart of that book, that, you know, a person built from documents is not a person. It's just a file cabinet. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not defined by my medical diagnosis or my, you know, tribal card or whatever. Um, And I think that, you know, in writing White Magic, at first I was trying to keep some of those questions of inheritance in tidy piles and tidy um, lines and chains to track where these various pieces of me and my understanding of the universe came from. But it quickly became so frustrating to try to create that project because it just wasn't that neat. Um, It just wasn't so easily trackable that I could say, you know, this part of of how I understand, um, you know, my role in the universe comes from my mother, this part from my father, this part from, you know, society outside the home, that that's impossible. It doesn't make any sense. And so I think white magic eventually was a project that represented a letting go of some of that pressure to self-define in a certain way or to, you know, to, to, split myself up or to identify, um, you know, sort of fault lines in myself that don't even exist. And I think that, you know, the way that I use form is a way of allowing a system of understanding that's not neat to be arranged in a way that doesn't rely on neatness the audience is approaching it in another way you know through fragmentation and gaps and um you know just moving through different topics and not necessarily um resolving a linear plot or keeping threads tidy i think that that eventually was what helped me to let go of that need to try to define where my various beliefs and characteristics came from. Yeah, I'm so curious to know how you mentioned earlier reaching a point in this in the writing of this project that felt like you were kind of passing through a portal where it became clear to you what you were, what you were up to or what the project was. Mm-hmm. And can you tell me more about that? Cause the question of how you, def- how you talk about what this book is now versus then was something I wanted to 
to touch on. And so maybe the best way to do that is to ask you about that, that portal in the work. Yeah. You know, I believe I knew I was writing something about spirituality and inheritance. Um, I don't remember exactly how much of the heart of the idea I had defined um, by that point I identified, which was mid-2017. I know that I was writing about my coal miner ancestors. I know that I was writing some about spirituality, and several of the essays in the book were in draft form, though not complete. Uh, I knew I was writing about Seattle. I knew I was writing about Pennsylvania. But, you know, in 2017, I was leaving Seattle to move out here to Ohio. Um, I knew that I was doing, you know, I was leaving a place where I thought I would spend the rest of my life and where a lot of change had happened for me. Um, I got sober in 2015. And, you know, my life just really changed. My conception of myself really changed. And I sort of, you know, in 2016, kind of moved on to the project of trying to have a healthy relationship. Um, I guess I was always trying to do that, but there was a new dimension to that effort after getting sober and having a new sense of self-worth. Um, and, you know, so in 2016, I had this relationship that I write about a lot in a book, in the book. Um, and I knew that when I was leaving Seattle, something was happening that I didn't understand. I kept seeing these synchronicities and I, had a renewed sense of the spirituality I had developed um, in my first year of sobriety. And I just felt like the universe was trying to tell me something. And so I began writing about it. You know, I was trying to write about something, you know, capital I important. I wanted to write about ancestry and um, coal and, you know, things that were not myself and my trauma and my relationships as I had been writing about. But I realized as I was coming to Ohio that that's what I was interested in. I wanted to write about my relationships still. I wanted to write about what was currently going on with me, the questions I was trying to answer, the problems I was trying to solve. And so I felt myself passing through some kind of portal as I drove from Seattle to Ohio and, you know, had said goodbye to my ex-boyfriend, uh, Carl, who's, uh, has a large presence in the book and, you know, came to Ohio and was trying to figure out what my, what the meaning of life was going to be, you know, separated from my land in Seattle, um, in Coast Salish territory and starting over with a new, new surroundings and a new community and figuring out what the synchronicities were telling me. So, you know, I got out here in July of 2017 
And I realized I was so drawn to watching Twin Peaks, not just in, you know, an entertainment sense, but also it felt like I was doing some kind of research for something. There were really gears turning in my head as I was watching this and, you know, thinking about um, and thinking about the idea of the Black Lodge, the idea of passing through a portal and so many of the um, concepts that are prominent in that show felt like they were relevant to me. So I just started taking notes on Twin Peaks and I felt a shift as I understood a little bit more what I needed to take on in this book project. And so I started just writing essays about where I was at, you know, with my missing of Carl and my desire to find love and my desire for my twin flame or soulmate or, you know, whatever the term on my mind was at the time. And I was interested in conducting an investigation into the universe through essays um, that focused on that relationship and astrology and magic and pop culture. How did you get into Twin Peaks? Like why Twin Peaks in that moment? Well, so Twin Peaks, The Return, the third season had, um, was in the process of being aired that summer. I can't remember exactly when they started airing it, but, you know, I had, I had watched the first two seasons years earlier. Um, you know, I was living in Seattle and I was, uh, familiar with some of the filming locations and, you know, uh, it's just like a very Seattle thing to do is like familiarize yourself with Twin Peaks. And, but I hadn't watched it in years. And so, of course, when The Return was coming out, I was watching that with my friends. And, you know, as often happens to me, it's like at the core of my writing process. If I'm watching a movie or a TV show or, you know, playing a video game, I will really identify connections between what's on my mind um, in a literary sense and what I'm seeing in what I'm viewing or playing. Um, the connections jump out at me so strikingly that it really still feels like magic to, to see them all the time. Um, I think in Twin Peaks, you know, the, the, the reason it started to become something I was pursuing in the book actually was that it just kept popping up in situations where I was with Carl. We, you know, we, um, went to this one bar where the bathroom was, um, decorated in, uh, you know, Black Lodge theme colors, I think. And um, we went to another bar where there was a little room in the back that was pretty clearly set up to look like the Black Lodge. Um, there was no, you know, comment on it, but uh, 
you know, no plaque marking as such, but it was very clearly meant to look like the Black Lodge. And I felt that there was something being signaled to me by the universe, and I decided to just go with it and start tracking those instances and, you know, watch the show again and see what came to me and, you know, keep current on the new season that was coming out. I think that, you know, the idea of going through the Black Lodge, a place where, you know, the, um, I'm trying to remember now how they describe it. It's been a while, but, um, a place of pure terror where the soul is cleansed or something like that. Um, and you need to face it with perfect courage in order to come out whole or something like that. That felt to me like something that I was doing. I knew that I was facing something that was keeping me in these cycles of relationship frustration and, you know, early years earlier, relationship violence. Um, Carl was not violent. He was um, just someone I wasn't well matched with and yet was pining over. But, you know, I, the, the relationship cycles had been going on for a long time and I knew there was something I wasn't seeing. There was something I wasn't able to face yet that I felt the essay was really going to get me closer to. That's so interesting and exciting. I really love thinking about the essay as something that can kind of be a vehicle for your own movement toward some intellectual or emotional or spiritual breakthrough in a way. Mm -hmm. Like I think the essay is such an interesting technology for that creatively, but also personally. Um, And I want to know how like what is the technical working process feel like to you when you're using the essay as a means for discovery or of like pushing towards or like punching through as opposed to something that you were i think a lot of people think of the essay as you write down something you've you've thought about or something you already know um what is how do you engage when you're writing day to day and you don't really know where you're going because the essay itself is, is the technology whereby you're going to discover this new place. Well, it feels terrible. Um, (laughs) I would normally say that if, I don't know, I feel like in the past I've said, you know, writing is so much fun. I love it. Um, And that's true. That is true. When I'm actually writing, it's fun and I love it. But the process is so complicated by this relationship I have with it. Um, right now, you know, I'm doing the same thing. You know, I'm I'm sticking with the same process of trying to answer questions through the essay. And the beginning of that process is always really fun and exhilarating because. I've had the spark of the idea and I begin to develop the voice and I begin to accumulate the research and I get the words on the page. Um, And it doesn't seem like it's going to be about anything particularly 
uh, grim or difficult uh, or rooted in, you know, pain I've been avoiding or anything like that. But it always is. And so then I go through a period of struggle where I'm not writing. I'm just accumulating, um, doing research and having experiences. And that part is really painful because it feels like it's not writing. It feels like it's not a legitimate part of the process, even though I know it is. Um, and I know that I have to have this time away from the page where I'm, um, you know, in this case, uh, not watching Twin Peaks, but playing lots and lots of video games that I'm going to be writing about and am writing about. Um, I have to let the gears turn away from the page sometimes and come back to the page eventually. But it's, it is a painful process at the point where I'm away from the writing itself because I'm feeling somewhat stuck in that I'm, you know, I know what the big hurt is that I'm trying to wrap my head around. I know that I'm approaching something, but I have not articulated it yet. And I'm keeping it in my head, which is the worst place for me to keep anything. I have like a memory disorder. So I'm just, you know, trying to find ways to capture the, you know, the movements of my mind to try to kind of log the process and log the insights so that I can go back and rebuild those on the page. Um, but I do think that it's getting easier the more that I do it because I'm able to, I am able to remember what it has felt like to know that I had an insight, but not remember how it came to me or the process um, to not be able to recreate that thinking on the page. So I take a lot more notes than I used to. Um, lots and lots and lots of notes and, um, you know, different ways of recording my process. Um, I think part of why it feels so bad is that I have been doing what people do in avoiding thinking about things that are painful. And here I am for my job, making myself think about painful things. It's If it were pleasant and fun, I would be just thinking about those things without forcing myself to get them into essays. I, I that you know there are many ways to have insight. There are many ways to have growth and you know reflect on my life and my experiences and my behaviors. The essay is one of them. It is unique, and you know therapy gets to some things the essay doesn't. The essay gets to some things that therapy doesn't, and you know there's lots of tears in both. Yeah. How do you know you're finally ready to stop note-taking and to begin writing, if indeed you make a distinction between those two parts of the process? Hmm. Well, I don't stop the note-taking ever, but I do start writing at some point. 
I just keep checking in with the drafts and keep, you know, like proofreading the same 50 pages or whatever and staying close to the work. This is a question that is on my mind every day lately. How will I know when it's time? Or that's not the question. The question is, why can't I write? Why am I not writing? Um, You know, I think that like it is a somewhat mystical process in a way. I have, you know, I, I really embraced that in writing White Magic and it worked. And so I know that I need to hold on to that idea because it is one that works for me. Um, I don't force myself to write when I can't write unless mm-hmm. I have a deadline, which I almost never have because, you know, <laughs> I, it just doesn't work for me. Um, so, you know, I, I think that eventually it does become so painful to be away from the writing that I, you know, I'm always trying. Um, writing is good for me. It, it's good for my mind. It's good for my life. Um, and you know, it's a big part of my job. Uh, so I'm always trying to get back there and eventually it just kind of works. Yeah. The other question I had reading this book is how did you know when you were done with this book? I knew, I I recognized the end game when I was in it. I recognized that writing the long essay, the spirit cabinet, um, I knew that that was going to be the way out of the book or the way toward the exit. That's how I was going to get toward the end of the book. I knew that in putting that together, I was solving the problem. I was figuring something out that was where the heart of the real investigation took place. I think that is, that was my black lodge going through all of those, you know, moments and memories and seeing the ways that the timelines matched up. They gave me information um, about what was happening. The, just the movements of the essay, um, you know, the the strength of the form that I had adopted allowed things to become clear to me that hadn't been. And I know that when I was done with that, it was clear that that was not the end of the book. And so What did present itself as the end was the game Red Dead Redemption 2, which I was playing in, oh, I think January 2018, maybe. Um, And that was such a site of convergence of all of the motifs that I had been building and recognizing in the book. you know, symbols are really important in white magic. And there were recurring symbols like, you know, jackrabbits and um, magicians and, you know, I'm forgetting what else, but, but there were these recurring symbols 
that felt like they were coming to a convergence point in Red Dead Redemption 2. And so I was taking notes on that and seeing how some of the dialogue and some of my reactions to it were giving me the answers that I had been looking for. Um, And I don't fully remember the process of writing that essay because it happened really fast, I think, after I had taken all my notes. I think that was a pretty easy essay to draft, the last one in the book. And, um, And I know that I was struck with the insight that, um, you know, that I express in that, in that essay that I was drawn to dangerous men and that perhaps my, um, if I was going to choose self-preservation, I was going to choose to be alone. And I think that's something that had been really it should have been obvious the whole time. And in a way it was obvious. And I was working with that knowledge throughout the writing process, but it hit me in a way that felt different. I felt like I really heard it from myself when I was writing at that point. And I just, you know, I drafted that essay and it later expanded, but, you know, I knew when I was done writing that, that I had the full, full draft, the full first draft. Um, Really finishing the book was, you know, another question entirely because I wanted it to be perfect. I wanted it to be exactly what I wanted. I didn't want to rush to publish it. I, you know, didn't want to leave anything undercooked. I really wanted to create something that I would be able to stand by for the rest of my life. So that took longer, but but I knew when I was at the end of the narrative because I had an internal shift. Do you remember what that day was like, what that writing day was like? No, I don't remember it at all. I don't, I don't even remember where I was when I wrote that essay. And I usually remember those things. I do remember, you know, playing the game, of course. And I remember taking the notes, um, I kind of feel like I may have been sitting on my couch working on that essay. Um, you know, I can picture the notebook at my side that I was scribbling things into. And I, I found that notebook recently. I remember the, you know, the strike of insight that was happening as I was playing. I think that a lot of the mental work was done, you know, sitting in front of my TV, playing the game. So maybe that's why the writing itself feels sort of um, less prominent in my memory because so much of the work was actually not happening with me typing out the words in the end. It really was all just piecing itself together inside me in a way that, you know, I am never confident that that will happen. Um, I'm always feeling like I can't possibly hold the whole content of an essay in my scattered brain, but, um, but it happens every time. Yeah. That, that feels like magic. Yeah. Um, what is it, what does it feel like to look backwards at this portal 
the portal we've been sort of describing and also the book now from from another side maybe not some you know place of completion but from the other side of of this thing it really does feel like completion and it didn't at first um i i kept seeing the synchronicities there were things that you know as i was just continuing to for example play the first red dead redemption which i did after completing the manuscript there were more things that came out that i realized these would be perfect in the book these are more um the, the synchronicities are still building some of those i put in some of them i didn't and i i think that once the book was published probably earlier than that but certainly once the book was out i felt like it was complete i felt like it was done um when i look back you know i'm i haven't read tarot in so at least a year i think more than that though um i am not really interested in witchcraft at all anymore uh it was you know a great a great thing for me for a long time but um i'm just I don't know. I just, I, I think it, it gave me what I needed. And now I don't follow astrology at all. Um, I don't do tarot, not interested in witchcraft. Um, I, I really think that I answered all my questions that I had for myself on that topic. Um, and it's strange. I, I'm not sure that I'll write about trauma again, at least the traumas that I've written about before. You know, I've, I've written about, newer difficulties and you know illness and pain and just like new newer you know things that I've gone through but I don't I don't feel like I have anything left to investigate when it comes to relationship violence and abuse and in my past um I I really feel like there was completion there um and so, you know, it it's a very complicated feeling because the experience of reading a book is the experience of all of that sort of being created for the reader in the moment. Um, there is an immediacy to a text um, as the reader is experiencing it. So in a way, it's still very much happening, you know, that in a way, the experiences and the concerns that for me are in, in the past and um, no longer really relevant to my day-to-day -day thoughts, in a way, those are still current concerns for people who are becoming acquainted with my work. It's really... I think that that was a, a threshold in ways that I really didn't anticipate at all. It changed my relationship with my identity as a writer, um, as a public person. You know, I didn't used to have a lot of secrets or I don't know if secrets is the word. I, I know I used to negotiate my identity and my interests um, very much in public, you know, on Twitter and in my essays and um, 
in, you know, publications that were coming out. Um, and now I feel like I want to be alone. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like I have wanted to just, um, make my progress in private now and have my interests and curiosities and concerns in private because I realize how much I am unpacking these very complex ideas. You know, I need 500 pages to unpack these ideas and that is work that I need to do away from the public. So I I think that that is that has a lot to do with white magic and the idea of you know readers just experiencing something that is so personal for me. I mean it's something I consciously know while I'm writing, but there's there's more there that I'm still that I'm still working through, I think. Thresholds is produced by Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshenwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to Justin Alvarez and our hosts at LitHub Radio. You can find out more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website. This is thresholds.com. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you normally listen, and subscribe and review us there. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.